is the Victory Away from the Venue podcast, showing a different side of the athletes you know and love, or maybe don't know and love, and how what happens far removed from the bright lights and the TV cameras can provide a different way to look at accomplishment. And now here are your hosts, two friends dating back to college and sports junkies their entire lives, Matt Swinney and Zach Wells. How's it going, everybody? Welcome inside episode number six of the Victory Away from the Venue podcast. We hope everybody had a safe, enjoyable, restful, and just fun holiday weekend, Labor Day. It's always a good holiday, a good time for friends and family, hopefully socially distanced, hopefully you had really good weather. I'm Zach Wells, co-host in Cincinnati, alongside the man, the legend, Matt Swinney. If you hear me call him Matthew Dean, it's just a, it's a 25-year formal title, because that's your name, right? Matthew <laughs> Dean Swinney. Officially. So I'll, yes. I'll just say Matthew Dean. Did you have a good weekend, Matt? Yeah, it was nice. We, uh, it was. I uh, love holiday weekends, especially when you. Maybe this didn't apply to you because you're in Texas, but here there was a little hint of fall in the air, like at night. I'm not saying that's the same for everybody, but here in the Midwest in Cincinnati, there was a little bit of, oh, do I need maybe a long sleeve shirt late at night to go out? Yeah, we got a uh, we got some big thunderstorms and that cooled it off a little bit, but it was still ninety something you know, here in Texas. And then, but this week it's going to be, it's going to be real nice. We're getting, we're getting a legitimate cold front. So all that, all that snow that's dumping in Colorado already is going to head this way. It's unbelievable. Colorado is my home state. Denver's my hometown. We had, I believe 95 degrees there on Labor Day on Monday. And I've got to check with my family that lives there six to 12 inches of snow forecast for today. Yeah. So Insanity. I, I have long believed that the reason so many people live in Denver now is because A, it's beautiful, B, it's really, really fun. But also, when I was little, Denver was kind of like the big secret, right? Like the only glimpse that a lot of people had of Denver was the snow in the mountains to go skiing and Monday night football games that were a blizzard, you know? But I don't think what people saw was when we were out of school the next day, it was sunny and like 50 and we were like sledding and getting sunburned and our parents were like, why are you out of school? And we're like, we really don't know. We're just going to take it. And we had to put on sunblock. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the joke in in Texas, right? Is that we get we get ice days. So in Austin, right, you get an ice day, and you remember this even like being in college, you get an ice day because it was supposed to be icy the next morning, right? But then so they'd cancel school, and then you wake up and it's like thirty five, and there's like you know the thinnest little layer of ice on the ground, and by seven thirty in the morning, it's all gone and it'll get up to seventy three degrees that day. And, and yet then you have the day off. like me are like, why are we <laughs> yeah, canceling school right. over a wet street? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly well, Matt, right. we've got a great show today. We have Ben Utech, a Super Bowl winning tight end for the Indianapolis Colts, played with Peyton Manning. Great guy, really talented. He's a musician and a singer. He's also a parent of four daughters, has a lovely wife named Karen. We talk about his career, playing with Peyton Manning, playing with the Colts, winning it all, but also the toll that football took on him and some of the concussions that he had, some brain and memory issues that he has had, and now his advocacy work to not only make football better for everybody, but some of the personal things he has done with his music to try to appeal to his daughters and try to put a personal story behind brain trauma. Because you hear brain trauma, right? His mission is if, if you see a story behind it or you see a personal kind of vouching for, hey, this is real and it's really, really hard, then that's a, a better way to get your story listened to. So I think you guys are going to really like listening to Ben Utech. Yeah, absolutely. He was, uh, he, getting to talk to him was kind of 
just a joy, right? I mean, I think you and I, you got to cover him in Cincinnati a little bit um, before nice he retired. Guy. Yeah, and just just a really, really nice human being and and somebody who you can tell just, you know, has been not not only an advocate, but like like you said, you know, attaching a story, you know, really being able to talk about his own personal experience. We, we talk a lot about vulnerability on this show. Um, some, somehow that that has come up a lot. And, and Ben talks a lot about, you know, being willing to be open and use that V word, um, you know, for him and his family. And it, it's, it's a really inspiring story. I think everybody's going to love it. Ben Utek is on deck here in the Victory Away from the Venue podcast. Matt, let's dig into this weekend. Labor Day tradition around the United States to have the U.S. Open, a Grand Slam tennis tournament in New York. First of all, I can't imagine how fun that is if you're able to go as a fan and you're a tennis fan, but I was really struck by the default of Novak Djokovic this weekend. If you guys didn't see it or hear about it, Djokovic was frustrated with his play. He took his racket and out of anger, hit a ball. He was not intending to hit a, a lines person. But he did behind him. He immediately saw that he had struck, I believe, a, a woman lines person in the in the throat. She was having some distress on the court. He immediately went, immediately apologized, immediately went to check on her, said, hey, look, there was nothing intentional about this. But the tournament defaulted him. This is the number one player and the number one seed in the tournament. And my point is, hey, good for them. If that's the tennis etiquette, you're willing to put yourself out there. And, and I guess we frame it as putting yourself out there, but really you're treating Novak Djokovic like you would treat anybody else. And he's one of your signature players and one of your marquee names. And one of the reasons people tune in to watch the U S open. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I had the same perspective you did. I think that, you know, I, I am a one, I'm a fan of both sides of this. Right. So if you actually saw it, I saw, I saw just enough of it that, you know, the fact that Djokovic, he immediately turned around. You could tell it was absolutely an accident. Look, we've all been on a field, on a court, whatever, got super frustrated, whether with an official or with ourselves or with an opposing team. And you I do have, something, yeah, and you do something that, that you regret later. And, you know, he, he did that. Um, and to his credit, he immediately regretted it. And to the official's credit, they treated the number one player in the world the same as they would have treated the number 186 player in the world. And, I don't look, it's funny, I think I saw a comment from, I think it was John McEnroe saying that um, Djokovic is now going to have to kind of overcome this bad boy image for the rest of his career. And I actually disagree entirely. But I think, he hasn't had a good year. No, and, and that's fine. There and have that, been some coronavirus issues and some missteps and mishaps around that. He, he's he's had a bad 2020. Right. It, it, optics it, wise. And, and, fun, and funny enough, like from an optics perspective, I actually think the coronavirus issues like actually play worse on him than this incident because it very clearly was an accident it very clearly you know but 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 I think it's an opportunity for him to learn something from it like we talk about you know especially superstar athletes you know sometimes have some prima donna attitude especially on the court or on the field and he clearly did that here and you know probably didn't expect to be defaulted for it and again to the to the tournament's credit they defaulted him exactly as they should have but I think to Djokovic, Djokovic's credit too, he did what he needed to do and he walked off the court and, you know, he's apologized. He, you know, he's done all those things. And, and I don't look, I don't look any way against him any more than I would 
you know, a baseball player, you know, kicking dirt at an umpire and calling balls and strikes and getting kicked out of a game. Look, is it, is it a great look? No. But do I dislike the player for it? No. And to me, I just think that I think it was handled really, really well all the way around. And I don't think Djokovic needs to kind of earn his way back from this, like, again, because it was an accident. Now, if he had turned around and shot a ball directly at her and, it, you know, then sure. that would be a different conversation, but that's not what happened. And, and I think I, I really do. I, I was impressed with how it was handled kind of all the way across the board. I'm really, really impressed, Matt, with college football. Yeah. You know, I watched on Monday night, BYU go to Navy and BYU straight up took it to Navy in Annapolis in their backyard. And I really believe I watched that game and it's a snapshot, right? We don't have full access to BYU. We don't have full access to the men and women at the United States Naval Academy. But I truly believe that you have people that are trying to make this work on all sides and they have good intentions. And I don't think anybody is there being like, oh, we're here to get everybody sick and and throw an outbreak out here. No, BYU is an independent. They've been an independent for 10 years, meaning they don't have a conference affiliation and you should see their schedule. They could have easily packed up, gone home, thrown a fit. Oh, poor Cougars. Nobody will play us. They piecemealed a schedule basically where they go to Navy and Army in back-to-back weeks to open the season. And then it's, hey, who wants to come to Provo and play us? University of Texas, San Antonio, come on over. Texas State, come on and make the trip. Western Kentucky, love to have you. And I just really applaud that. I applaud that. I applaud them taking the protocols as safely as they are. I applaud them putting a really good football team on the field. And a credit to the players and the coaches, they are ready to play. They are ready to get after it. And they got after Navy. And, and, and Navy's a heck of an institution as well. And, you know, they, they were on the wrong side of the scoreboard. But you saw, I, I think, men and women that are part of these programs that want to make it work. I think the Big Ten could could – could follow suit in October if they're able to play their conference schedule. And goodness gracious, the Pac-12 just, I think, really jumped the gun. They really panicked. It was premature. And now you're seeing the fallout, right? The University of Utah just had to furlough their entire athletic department. It's unbelievable. Because really, there's nothing to show, and there's no TV revenue coming in to show any of these sports. So they have to, to send their athletic department home for an untold number of months and that's the ramification, really, of, of no football in an athletic department. Yeah, and, and, and let's be realistic. A Utah coaching staff, AD, they're going to be fine. They, they make good money. They're going to be fine. But, at the top of the pyramid. Yeah, but, but, but what happens to the you know, third you know, assistant coach on the women's basketball team? Right. I mean, that, that's not a big salaried position. Right. That's not a you know, and so we're talking about, you know, furloughing employees and, and that's not even getting into the student athletes. Right. So, I mean, this is just talking about the job creation and, and job development and everything else. You know, so to me, I'm with you. And, and I think that it's going to look really crazy if we make it through. Look, it, it, the problem with this whole coronavirus thing is if we do all the right things, then at the end, we will have gotten to, let, let's say with college football, just using that as the example. When we get to the end of the season, if we've done all the right things, we've had a great season, there have been very few cases, you know, there's a champion crowned at the end, yada, yada, yada. And a lot of people will turn around and go, see, we made a big deal out of nothing. Or we just did all the right things to make sure that we could get to the end. And, you know, my fear 
it's not even a fear. I mean, it, it, it's likely going to happen. So, so one of two things is going to happen. Either all of this is going to go to hell and the entire college football season is going to shut down somewhere in the middle of it because it didn't work. And, and, and that, that's, a, that's a real thing that could happen. Or we're going to get to the end and somebody like the Pac-12 is going to look back at it and go, well, crap, we made the wrong decision. And I have a feeling just having watched how the pro sports have worked and how really it's been pretty good, right? Even without a bubble for baseball and things like that. Yeah, there've been a couple issues here and there, but they've been overcome. I, I, I think there's a very, very good chance that we make it to the end of a college football season. Maybe we do, maybe we don't, but I think the chance is very high. And, you know, you got to wonder what the fallout for somebody like the Pac-12 or, or any of the smaller conferences or the Big Ten. If they if they don't end up coming back, I think you and I both agree that they will. But, you know, what, is, what does that look like? And, and what are the long, long, long-term ramifications of that, you know, on student athletes, on even on recruiting, right? Which, which seems like a, not a big deal right now. But, you know, do you as a recruit – if you were looking at USC, Ohio State, and Oklahoma, well, Oklahoma's Those are good playing staff. <laughs> well, right, but I mean, Oklahoma. How do I pick? Right, yeah. but but Oklahoma's playing football right now, right? And right. so and so you have an opportunity to see that that team on TV, and that gets you excited, or whatever the case may be. And so, are you more likely to pick Oklahoma? Yeah, probably in some cases, right? Like, I mean, especially if you can't get face-to-face with coaches and that kind of thing, you know, at some point you just start to sort of bleed the teams that you get to watch on TV every Saturday. And I I think there's going to be some long-term issues for the conferences that don't play. I mean, that's just the reality of it. I really believe that there's a middle ground here. You know, I I think that you can, you can try, right? Just try. Mm -hmm. That's what we ask our kids to do. Just try. You have, Ken Niumatololo at the U.S. Naval Academy. You have Jeff Monken at West Point. You have independents like BYU. You have Brian Kelly at Notre Dame. They can at least go to their to the parents, to their fans, to their stakeholders, to everybody who supports a particular school. And that's not a, a short list, by the way. And say, look, we're we're trying. Yeah, we are doing protocols. We are trying to get the kids to be as isolated as they possibly can. We have swabs, we have temperature screenings, we have everything we possibly can do to try to make this as safe as possible. Oh, and by the way, in BYU's case, in Army's case, we're piecemealing a schedule the best we possibly can. And at the end of the season, if we only play seven games, well, that's seven games we were able to play instead of sitting home wondering what if. Well, and hopefully getting, look, look, all those kids, even at a BYU, right? I mean, I, I didn't get Last to Last night, the those kids were ready. They well, were ready to come and play. And not just that, but I mean, there's there's going to be one or two or three kids on that BYU team who get it who get an NFL sniff, right? And so sure. and so to me, if you play no games, then you know you're you're potentially destroying that dream for those kids who are going to get that sniff. And if you are playing games and you go out there and you play well and you do all the things that you have to do, you know, you do open yourself up to either being drafted or being a free agent pickup or whatever the case may be. And you got to wonder how many, how many kids in, in the Pac-12 are going to miss out on that opportunity now. And I get it. They have one more year of eligibility and they'll come back and they'll do all of that. I, I get it. And I understand all of that. And hopefully that will be the case for all of them too. But, you know, now you're talking about 
that extra year of eligibility means that, you know, that freshman who was going to get redshirted, who was going to play behind somebody, well, now they're going to have another year that they're going to have to play behind somebody, you know, and you have all these new recruits coming in. It just, it stacks everything up by one more year. And I, it'll be very, very curious, right, to see what what happens with, with some of those kids on an individualized level. And it's not going to affect the kids who were first round draft picks at the end of the day. I really don't believe that that's the case. They've got plenty of film on tape. They've got they've got plenty out there for NFL scouts to take a look at. It's all those kids and think about the the number of them, the dozens of them, the 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 hundreds of them who are right on that cusp or maybe aren't even on the radar yet, you know, who now are going to come in and, you know, and 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 would and would get into that sixth round, fifth round or even just a free agent pickup after the fact, like how many of those are going to lose out on that opportunity and it, and it breaks my heart a little bit. Right. Well, especially at positions that, you know, as the game advances, I'm talking about football specifically, positions that have been devalued the way they have, like running back. Sure. You have J.K. Dobbins going in the third round of the NFL draft. Yep. Now, that is a man. I mean, he is a productive beast out of the backfield, and the Ravens were like, good grief. I mean, he he just fell right to us in the third round. We're going to pair him and Lamar Jackson. J.K. Dobbins, in my opinion, in the old NFL, I mean, that's first – that's first round tape right there yeah. and productivity. Yeah. Probably talk and now, n- now you're, now you're slipping. Yeah. And you know, you look at a running back at a, at a school like it, say Arizona state, say USC, say Stanford, that's not going to be able to play this year. Yeah. And is maybe trying to be a fifth rounder or a fourth rounder with good tape and a good senior year. I agree yeah. with you. I think it's, I think it's a risky game. I also don't like how the conferences are taking this high and mighty stance and basically handcuffing the programs where, okay, we're not playing football this year. And by the way, it's going to be a united front and you can't betray the party line and go schedule yourself. Yeah, that, that bothers me. And I think we even talked about that a little bit last week. That, that bothers me. If I'm, if I'm, I'm talking Nebraska, about Nebraska specifically. Yeah, yeah. What is wrong with Nebraska or Ohio State? And by the way, as of today, you know, September 8th, it looks like the Big Ten is going to be playing football. You know, according to reports, Ohio State was in full pads the other day and that's not for their health. And it looks like maybe in a month, the Big Ten will be able to resume football. Let's hope so. Yeah. But, but why if, why if the, the Big Ten is saying, oh, we're not going to have football this year, and Pac-12 is saying, no, we're not going to have football this year, why can't a member school say, well, why don't we just piece together a schedule like BYU did? Why can't we be an independent for a year and go put together a, 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 a pecking order of schools, you know, slot them in where we lost games, and, and, and try to make a go of it? I tell you what, people are losing their jobs. And like you said, Tom Herman, the head coach at the University of Texas, I don't know his personal business, nor is it any of my business, but I'm pretty sure he could never coach another day and and be fine for the rest of his life financially. I'm talking about people making 30 grand or 40 grand a year that run the risk of living to paycheck to paycheck, being evicted or or kicked out of their places and and not not having any income in a pandemic. Those are the people that are losing their jobs here, not the people making 5 million a year. Right. And, and I think that, I think, I think that's a big piece of it. I completely agree with you that, look, I, I'm a big fan of, and look, we, not to get political here. Right. But the idea of, never but, but, but the idea of, you know, say a governor of a I'm state allowing, but you know, having a governor of a state allowing, you know, local cities to be able to choose their own paths 
right? Especially as it related to coronavirus. We had some of those issues here in Texas, you know, of, to me, it's the same thing, right? Of this, you know, you're a bigger bodied organization who can't know what the best thing is for each member school, right? And so at some point, like, would USC, and we don't know, so the Pac-12 has been much quieter about this, right? I feel like, I feel like we have not seen much news about any dissension among the ranks in the Pac-12 like we did in the Big Ten, right? So in the Big Ten, it was very quick after that first vote where Nebraska and Iowa both came out and they were like, that's not what we wanted to do. So, you know, I, I think, I think, you know, the idea, yes, Nebraska was the first one, but I think any school, and by the way, that could go the other direction too. If I'm a Big 12 school, if I'm, I'm just totally making this up, but if Iowa State had come out and said, hey guys, we don't feel comfortable, then I think it's also okay for that route too, for the Big 12 to say, we understand. Hey, and if you don't, and if you don't want to play and you think that's best for your program, then cool. Like you guys are, you you have the same eligibility issues, right? So all your kids can come back for an extra year. We get it. And so you guys will see in 2021. And that would be okay too. Like this isn't me trying to push the agenda that football should be being played. It's me trying to push the agenda that each school should have the opportunity to make that decision for themselves. And if their players and their coaching staff- And the staff, people affected. Right. And if their players and coaching staff and um, athletics department and parents are all on board to play or majority are on board to play, then let's play. And if the majority are not on board to play, then let's don't play. I'm okay with that too. It's just that to me, this idea that, yeah, that there's this like governing body that then just throws it out there. It seems patently unfair. Right. And so if I'm Nebraska, same thing, like, and it's funny. So we, we talked a little bit. So Notre Dame basically joined the ACC for this season as an independent um, BYU chose not to join a conference for this season and instead create their own schedule, which ends up being sort of a cupcake schedule for the most part. But like, I'm pretty sure if they had called the big 12 and said, Hey, you want to bring us in for a year? There's no reason the big 12 wouldn't at least have that conversation of, Hey, everybody let's, let's everyone play BYU and they're going to jump in the conference for this season. They got a chance to win a, a big 12 championship or whatever the case may be. And to me, I wouldn't, as a fan of the big 12, I wouldn't have any issue with that. Hey, if those kids want to play, let's don't forget they're still kids who just want to have a college experience who just, you know, they've dreamed of playing college football their entire lives. And so, or basketball or whatever the case may be, by the way, we're talking about football, but the reality is, is this is going to move into the rest of the fall sports, right? And all those decisions are going to have to be made again. And to me, same thing. Like if we get to basketball season, that's inside, right? That's inside. It's tougher. But to me, like, same thing. Like if Texas wants to play and OU doesn't want to play, I'm okay with that. Like just let, let the teams play that want to play. Let's figure out what that schedule looks like. And then let them kind of let it be a free for all out there for one season, right? We're not breaking up conferences. We're not breaking up the NCAA. We're not doing any of those things. We just want to play or we don't want to play and let us make those decisions for ourselves. Before we get to Ben Utech, I just think it would have been awesome if Ohio State had joined the SEC for 2020. How awesome would that be? Well, I mean, it would be incredible. You'd have Ohio State going to Alabama. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have yeah. Florida going to Columbus. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah, or, or I mean, I think you and it I would, talked it about would, it. Would, it would, in my opinion, open up doors that would change college football, I think, forever, honestly, yeah. yep. and maybe for the better. Well, and you and I talked about the whole – 
the whole conference affiliation thing, like what, you know, a bunch of what if scenarios, what if you just these guys are, these guys it, are, are paraprofessional athletes in well, a minor league system with a very yeah. loose affiliation to a school and a conference. Yeah, it, is what, a, it is a minor league training ground to get to the NFL. Right. But to me, like Period. what, what, how cool would it have been this se- this season only to literally yes. just blow up the conferences and say, yes. and say, let, let's do this on a regionalized level. Right. So yeah. there's no reason Texas should be going to West Virginia, you know, which is you weird. Make the case anyway. They shouldn't be going there anyway. Yeah. Well, you could make that case, but so, so now, now that game is going to happen, but the Texas LSU game, which is by the way, a four hour bus ride is, is not going to happen. Right. And by the way, I want to see Texas play LSU much more than I want to see Texas play West Virginia. But you see what I'm saying? Like you could have regionalized everything, blown up the conferences for a minute, done some cool rivalry games. Maybe it's the opportunity where Texas and Texas A&M finally play each other again, bury the hatchet for one season and let's see what happens. I mean, to me, you could have created these amazing fun rivalries that were all regional. You have a lot of people, you know, and then see what happens, right? Like just play out one season like that go back to your conference affiliations in 21 and let's call it a day. But, you know, smarter people than me with a lot more money on the line, I guess, have (laughs) have chosen something else. And UTech played collegiately at the University of Minnesota, was going to be a first or second round draft pick in the NFL. You talk about having a lot of stake in the outcome. You talk about, you know, being able to put good tape out there. He actually got hurt in the battle for the axe, the big rivalry game between the Golden Gophers and the Wisconsin Badgers, and got a sports hernia to the point he went undrafted. And his story of getting picked up by the Colts, I'm not going to ruin it for you. The promise Tony Dungy made him before the draft and then after following up on bringing him to the Colts is phenomenal. Matt, venue tech. It is great today, a delight on the Victory Away from the Venue podcast to bring in a former NFL tight end, a Super Bowl champion with the Indianapolis Colts, and now in retirement, a guy who's an accomplished musician and an advocate for brain health based on the trauma in his football career. I welcome in and say hello to Ben Utech in Minnesota. Ben, it is great to have you on the podcast, man. How are you? Great. Thanks, Zach and Matt. It's it's an honor to be with you guys. Well, Matt, it's so much fun to connect with Ben again because, Ben, you're doing all this incredible advocacy now in retirement based on you know, brain health and, and using music as a platform to really impact other people, your, your leadership consulting with companies, and you're a father to four daughters. So I have to ask you, what is more tiring, a, a pass <laughs> workout with Peyton Manning on the practice field or chasing, because I think I know the answer, or chasing four little girls around the house <laughs> and juggling all of those activities? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think the the audible system in our house rivals that of of, of Peyton Manning. Um, it's it's uh, there's there's code words for every type of request, and and uh, there's there's emotions connected to every single toy, and so it's not it's not just the physical; it's it's the emotional and the spiritual demand that's upon me with five women in the house every single day. So that, that's the answer. <laughs> so the best part about fatherhood is what, especially to four girls? Um, honestly, it, it, it's, being, uh, it's being challenged by them. I, I've, I say this often that I've never learned more about myself as a man than having been a father to four incredible uh, daughters. And it really has raised the bar on, on what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a great husband and a great father? Um, 
and that bar is set with with the ideology that I'm the first example of what a hero looks like in the world, right? They they watch me, and they watch how I treat their mother, and they watch how I treat their their sisters, and they I'm the first example of how a man treats a woman in their lives, and so. Uh, once I realized that, it, man, it just set the bar on, um, on how I need to just sell out to to showing them um, what true integrity and character looks like as a as a man, so that hopefully, that's the kind of man that they look for in the future. That's awesome. awesome. Ben Utsek is our guest today on the Victory Away from the Venue podcast. Matt, go ahead. I was just saying, just what a beautiful sentiment. I, I also have a daughter. Uh, Zach has a daughter. Uh, we also both have sons. And I will say from a father's perspective, not only is that the case, um, I know you only have girls, Ben, but I try to have that same perspective with my son, right? Of a, he needs to also see how um, his father reacts to his own mother and to his daughter. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think we've gotten into, I, I love that you use this sort of term of, of sort of what a man is supposed to look like. Right. And you, by the way, coming off of an NFL career, you know, we've all been around in sports, a lot of machismo. Right. And, um, and, and, and that can be an okay thing. Don't get me wrong, but in the grand scheme I think that this idea that we treat our sons differently than we treat our daughters is starting to go by the wayside. I really do try to treat, and, and I'm not always successful at it, I'll be the first to admit, but mm -hmm. trying to show both of them what being a powerful, strong woman looks like and being a powerful and strong man and yeah. how those correlate with one, one another. And they're not in, they're not, they're not fighting with each other, right? Yeah, they are, right. they should be, partners right like I think of my wife as a, my partner um mm -hmm. and and it and it's you know to me like that idea of kind of raising both and and I know you don't get to you, you don't have a son but my mm -hmm. guess is you'd have that similar perspective oh yeah and I've got you know I've got a I've got a handful of nephews and yeah. and um you know I think that you know and this this is a crossover from from what I learned uh, under Tony Dungy and servant leadership but there there's there are behavioral principles that cross over, uh, cross over gender, um, such as vulnerability, empathy, you know, grace, uh, these types of, these types of principles that we need to, we need to practice as fathers, you know, because I, it, whether it's with your boy or whether it's with your, with your girl, right. I mean, I think that, that, um, you know, you talk about machismo, I think it's really hard. How do you, how do you practice vulnerability in an NFL locker room with 53 of the most masculine men that you, that you've ever been around? But that was a part of the, the, the Colts way. You know, we would, we would spend time in small groups outside of, outside of our um, practice days in order to go deeper into our interpersonal relationships. Because if we grow as a team, if we grow together in our interpersonal relationships, we be, we care more about each other because we've allowed that relationship to grow through vulnerability. And that ends up leading into, I'm going to play harder for those guys on the field, you know, and that, that crosses over into life and business, which is really powerful. And I'm curious, and it doesn't matter who, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, real quick. So, so who led that? on on the Colts was that was that a team thing like a player thing was that coach Dungy was that from the front office down was it unique to you guys as a group or do you think that's continued I think that 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 definitely was the Dungy effect 
Um, you know, you hear stories about, uh, um, well, I experienced, you know, even, even Peyton Manning would, would uh, have uh, special dinners at his house with every single position group throughout the course of a year. Or you've got um, Coach Dungy who's instituting family Saturdays uh, all throughout the year where you can bring your family, your children, your wives, your girlfriends uh, to experience what that Saturday practice looks like. There's a story about how uh, initially that was something that Peyton was uh, not interested in. And at times from my understanding of what I've heard is that, you know, he, he, um, uh, he was at conflict with Coach, Coach Dungy around that. You know, um, I, I can't focus on passing to Mar Marvin Harrison while his son is hanging on, hanging on to his leg while we're doing walkthrough. Um, uh, but interestingly enough, when Peyton went to Denver uh, and Coach Dungy had retired, he was doing, I think he was doing a um, Sunday night kickoff with the Broncos or something like that. And Stokely comes running over to Dungy and he goes, you're not going to believe this. Uh, uh, f first team meeting this last year, Peyton stood up and said, I think we're going to institute family Saturdays. Right, because awesome. he, he just began building a family. And after the game, you know, Coach Dungy is, you know, in the press uh, and he's, he's seen Peyton up there uh, at the press conference and his, and his son is, is hanging on to his leg and he just had a big smile on his face. So it's, it's creating that kind of chosen culture and practicing it uh, and, and the, the benefits really are, are, are priceless. So some background on Ben for our listeners. Ben grew up in Minnesota, son of a preacher, a minister, played college football at the University of Minnesota, was undrafted in 2004, signed as a free agent with the Indianapolis Colts. And Ben, it's, it's I, I don't bat a thousand on much. I don't have a 100% success rate at much, but no matter which NFL player I talk to who has played under Tony Dungy, and I've talked to players who have played for more than one NFL head coach, they without fail say Tony Dungy is by far on any level, high school, college pro, my favorite NFL coach. Is that true for you? And why is he such a great man and a great leader and now a great friend in retirement? Um, gosh, you know, at, e at each level, there were difference makers. Um, you know, my high school coach, Bob Majeski, who was in the Minnesota Hall of Fame, uh, played an integral role. I wouldn't have gone to the University of Minnesota without him. Glenn Mason, uh, came into University of Minnesota and turned that program around, uh, you know, going 10 and three my senior year. Without that, it wouldn't have led to the NFL. But there, 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 really, there really was something special about Tony Dungy. Um, you know, you read his book, Quiet Strength and, and Uncommon. And I think once, once you actually get to live, live it out with him, you, you begin to experience um, – what makes it so unique. And that, that really is that, that um, he's probably one of the most authentic men that I've ever been around, right? What you see, what you hear is exactly who Tony Dungy is. There's no hidden agenda. There's no exaggerations, right? There's no manipulations. There's no pride. It's just Tony. Um, he's that way at home. He's that way in the locker room. He's that way on camera. He's that way in his prison ministry. He's that way in his all pro debt. I mean, that, there, that consistency and that authenticity is, I think, something that is very rare to find in any human being. And I think that's what really sets him apart.
So that 2006 season, you caught 37 passes, came in undrafted. You go on and win the Super Bowl. So there are NFL players that have played 15 years and maybe go to the playoffs four times, never even come close to the Super Bowl. What was that moment like? What was it like when the confetti came down and then the parade when you guys got home to such a great sports town in Indianapolis? To be able to just soak that in, how this this is a a 12-month-a-year weightlifting, conditioning, training camp, and then the grind of the season in the playoffs to have that kind of accomplishment. Well, honestly, Zach, it, it, it's, it's a, it's emotional for me because it, it started, it started in 2003. You know, I, I was a, a top two tight ends in the country and I was a, a projected first or second round draft pick. And then I had a terrible sports hernia injury my senior year where I tore the abs from my pubic bone against Wisconsin. And um, I was red flagged by all the NFL teams because of the, being a health risk. And so I went from being a potential first, late first round draft pick to not getting drafted at all because of an injury. And I had a chance to speak at a, at a bank, at a athletes in action function on the university of Minnesota campus with Tony Dungy. And cause he's also a gopher. He's also a university of Minnesota alumni. Right. So I get up in front of about six, 700 people and I say, Hey coach, if you really care about the university of Minnesota, you're going to draft me in the upcoming draft. <laughs> and everybody got a kick and kick out of it. And he was gracious enough to respond. And when he got up, you know, he said, you know, Ben, we just drafted the first round pick last year in Dallas Clark. And I don't think we're going to be looking for tight ends. Then he pauses if he was being downloaded something. And he came back to the mic and he said, you know what? I'll make a promise to you right now in front of all these people. For some reason you don't get drafted. I'll be the first person to call. And everybody clapped, kind of went in one year, not the other. Fast forward two months, don't get drafted. Holding back tears in my agent's office. I think my career is over. All that's left is the free agent market. I'm still injured. 20 seconds in, the phone rings on my agent's desk. And I pick it up, and who do you think it was? Tony Dungy. Tony Dungy. And our Hall of Fame general manager, Bill Polian. And you guys know it. Head coaches and and GMs are not calling free agents, you know? So they called and they said, Hey Ben, we know how talented you are when you're healthy. We want to send you to the top surgeon in the country for this injury, get you surgery. Don't even worry about playing, just get better the first year and we'll pay you as though you're a playing rookie. Right. That league minimum then was like $230,000. So I got $230,000 to rehab. You know, and the miracle in that, Zach, is three years later, you know, I'm one of the starting tight ends on a Super Bowl championship team. And none of that happens without Tony Dungy's uh, commitment that he made, that promise that he made, and fo- following up on that and giving me the chance to compete and, you know, to play along some incredible players. Um, and so here I am, this kid from Hastings, Minnesota, on the Mississippi River, 15,000 people in that town to playing in front of 101 million people and uh, Minnesota born Prince was playing halftime show. It was just, it's hard to put into words. It was just truly miraculous. And we asked, so we got to uh, talk a couple weeks ago with Jeremy Affelt, who uh, was a pitcher for the giants and won three world series with them. So what is that moment when you, we got to ask him the same question. What is that moment when you know you're about to win the Super Bowl, what is that? What is, oh, I, I know it's miraculous, but like, what is, I mean, 
what is that feeling? What's that emotion you have? Um, I think that it's, it's pure joy. I don't really know how else to describe it. It's, um, you know, we all experience happiness, but try to imagine the kind of joy that there's not a, there's not an ounce of stress or anxiety or, or, um, fear, you know, it, it's just, it, it's just, it's completely pure in nature. I, I don't know if that makes any sense to you guys, but I remember standing on the sideline and here we are under a minute now and, and the, the game is in the bag, 29 to 17, you know, it's over and just, everything really does go into slow motion and you kind of are just looking around and you're seeing the faces of everybody on your teammate. And I remember turning around and looking back into the stands and my family was, a you know, you know, 10, 10 rows up, you know, right behind me and just looking at my dad's face, you know, where it all began in the, in the backyard playing catch and my mom and all of the support and, and my wife um, who just has been, this incredible pillar of strength and, and support uh, in my life and, and friends. And it, it just, it's just this moment of just pure joy that, that uh, kind of culminates into one event, you know, and it just was uh, radically special. Yeah. Being able to share that with all of those amazing people in your life who have shaped you, you know, from the day you were born, I imagine it feels a bit like um, your life flashing, your football life at least flashing before your eyes, right? You get to have, that is one of the beautiful things of maybe knowing you're going to win, that those, you know, that it doesn't happen on a final play or it's not something, a miraculous comeback or something like that. But knowing that you're going to win, right? I'm, I'm guessing you get to take a few moments to do those things, right. To Mm -hmm. get to look around to, you know, you're on the sideline, you know, when football is, is, is unique, you know, in something like baseball, you're probably on the field unless you're, you're not playing at that moment or whatever. And I would just imagine that that being able to have that just like deep breath before that final whistle blows, because we know what's going to happen when the final whistle blows, right. It's going to be utter chaos and probably going to be utter chaos for the next, you know, couple of weeks while you guys are, are, are still pulling it all back together. So it's really a beautiful story. And, you know, I can imagine, you know, I get a little uh, choked up as a, as a father of, of thinking about, you know, being able to see my son, you know, look back at me and realize that all of his dreams have come true, at least a, a professional dream. So it's, it's really special. Thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. So Ben, you've written a lot and now, in, excuse me, in retirement, you've really taken on the cause of brain health and brain trauma and, and really making that a focus of your advocacy, of, of a good part of your, your work. Um, so, so you've written before that you've had five documented concussions as a player. Do you think with the current standards and the current criteria and evaluation, you've had more in your career than five? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I, I wrote about, I think I wrote about a couple that I remember um, for, um, specifically happening. Um, I know one was in one, one was in Cincinnati in a practice, uh, in a practice, um, and uh, I remember that night just having headaches and waking up with night sweats, and you know, just telling my wife, I think I 
I think I'm, I had a concussion, but you know, you didn't, you didn't want to say anything at the time because there's, you just want to play. You want to play for your team, your teammates, your, your coaches. But yeah, definitely. I, you know, there was really no, there was really no thorough education for what, for what a concussion was um, as a player when I grew up in high school and in college and, and in, into the NFL. I mean, a concussion was just getting your, getting your, your bell rung. So you know, how many times did I get my bell rung in high school, college, and, and the pros? <laughs> definitely more than definitely more than five. And Ben, what is now your 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 mission? It seems like you have this calling to help people understand brain health, and it comes with some memory loss on your part not being able to remember singing at a, at a friend's wedding. Mm-hmm. How, how has, has the game for all its joys and all, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a, a juxtaposition, right? You have mm-hmm. football open up all these doors and you make all these friendships and all these relationships and you know, coach Dungey and just those great moments together, but also the physical toll is also with you long after you retire. How, how has the game really impacted your memory and, and how does that kind of impact you on a daily basis as you move forward? Yeah, a year, well, the, a year short of your fortieth birthday. Sure. Yeah. The, the, you know that that was really the reason for retiring early um, was having some of these cognitive issues, and there really wasn't anything I I, I knew about that I could do at the time um, to to help with it. Um, <clears throat> but as I wrote about it, kind of at the end of uh, of of my book, um, uh, I came across this company, Learning RX, which which really focuses on cognitive brain training. And over the course of a hundred hour intensive program, all of a sudden my neuropsych evaluation uh, results began skyrocketing. And as I'm sure you guys can recognize, I, I, I'm, I might be stronger cognitively today than I, than I ever was when I was, when I was playing football um, because of what the brain's capabilities are of, of repairing and strengthening and, and creating new neural pathways, you know, uh, to support, uh, to support uh, the traveling of information, so on and so forth. And so, uh, really, my passion, Zach, is is um, I want the game of football to thrive. I've, I think I've tried my best. Um, I've tried my best to always have that message in my in my concussion platform. Uh, you know, I've never been an anti NFL, anti uh, contact sports. Uh, advocate. I've been a, a pro advocate. I think that there's an incredible balance that we can have um, recognizing that what makes us human beings is our brains. And if that's true, then what can we do to make sure that we take care of that number one priority? And uh, as long as there's more that we can do, I think that there needs to be voices that, that, um, that press into that. And I think we've made a lot of strides. I think we've come a long way. And I think we're seeing the culture of concussion change in the country. Um, and I hope that that even continues to grow stronger. Uh, because like you said, there's a toll and um, there is a long-term effect of, of whether it's football or hockey or any contact sport. Um, there's a long-term effect on, on people that, that play the game a long time. And so we want to make sure that they're taken care of. So with that learning RX program that you went through a hundred hours, were you able to 
recapture some of the memories that you lost or are those, are you still unable to get, to get a grasp on that? Yeah, ne- never was, was able to recapture. There was never, a, there was never like a light bulb moment where all of a sudden I woke up and it was like, wow, I, that was one that I know I lost and I got it back. Um, and, and as I've spent time with my neurologist friends at the American Academy of Neurology here in Minneapolis, you know, they, they've, they've, you know, affirmed that that is natural, that that's normal. You know, there's probably not going to be anything that can bring back some of the things that I've lost due to injury. But going forward, can I do things uh, in order to strengthen my short and long-term memory, in order to strengthen my processing speeds? Um, And the answer is yes. And that was what was really exciting to me. Um, You know, it's, it's, it's one thing I wish was more mainstream. You know, why, why don't we have brain training programs in every high school, college, and, you know, professional football program? Why not? If anything, all you're doing is, I mean, why, why do you give players the wonder lick every year? Why do they have to take a cognitive assessment and an intelligence assessment? Because obviously there's a value to that on the field. And so why not improve that for all your players? I mean, if you're improving the, the cognitive abilities of all of your players on the field, think of how potentially how much uh, that will improve their performance on the field. And your, your travels for this topic have taken you to the White House, you know, to the Senate floor. What has been your message? And can you just talk about the people you've met along the way and just some of the questions they have for you to be able to get a better understanding from someone who's been in the trenches what kind of issue we're dealing with here in terms of sure. trauma? Yeah. You know, I've, um, the NFL players association asked me to testify in Congress. Um, and I've had the chance to be, I think the only living player to object at the, the federal court in, in Philadelphia over the, um, over the, uh, the mass tort litigation that we were in, uh, for, uh, for concussions. And, um, you know, Again, I, I made it clear because, as you know, um, you know, when you go up against somebody like the NFL, um, it, you never really get anywhere because you, you, you come at it the wrong way. I, I was always pro-brain, pro-game. And the message, Zach, was that um, my job was to emotionally connect people to the importance of their mind and their memories right? Because the only way you really get people to change is if you can affect the heart. You have to get them emotionally um, involved in order to really create behavioral change. You know what I mean? You're never going to create true behavioral change if someone really doesn't care much about something. And so I think sharing a story and giving a unique perspective, and we talked about this, being vulnerable right, um, is I think uh, what allowed me to create a platform where my, my goal was, how can, I, how can I emotionally connect you to how, how valuable your brain really is to who you are? And if that becomes more valuable to you, how does that change the way you make decisions going forward for your children in contact sports or for yourself in contact sports? While, while continuing to elevate the game of the football and, and to praise the NFL for, you know, what, 
what a great organization it can be um, uh, to this, you know, American community. So yeah, to the best of your knowledge, you're the only active player that objected to the mass was a class action lawsuit against the NFL for brain injuries. And that was my message to, to, to the judge as well was, look, I'm, I'm, I'm the youngest, I'm one of the youngest uh, in this, in this, um, in this litigation. And, you know, I, I just think that we need to, you know, we need to understand the emotional nature of, of, of this injury. And we need to make sure that, um, that uh, the NFL as an organization is held accountable to the long-term care of players that are battling brain disease. That, it, it got, as we talk about this, does that really seem that far outside of what any fortune 500 company is already doing for their employees? It's really not, you know, and, but they do it through insurance. That was another thing that came up with why not having it, you know, why not just do it through insurance instead of, instead of the court. But, um, you know, that's all it is, you know, let's take care of our players and let's continue to, to love the game of football. It's not hard. Yeah. It's an easy balance at the end of the day. Right. I mean, you, you, the guys on the field, ultimately that's where the paychecks come from, right. For everybody along the line from the, from the hot dog vendor all the way to the ownership. And to me, you know, I I appreciate that the players association was willing to go down that road ultimately. And, and, you know, hopefully at some point, you know, did convince the NFL, this is absolutely in your best interest long-term, right? And, you know, to me, that's that's the easy balance. And, you know, we've, we've got to stop looking at, in my mind, all, all sports, right? We've got to stop looking at players as commodities. They're human beings first. And yes, free agency is a thing and we're going to flop back and forth and some guys are going to be out of the league in a year and some guys are going to make it 15 years. And it really doesn't matter the sport, right? Like almost every professional sport, at least in the United States, you know, treats players essentially the same way. And I, I applaud you guys for for making that stand because it ain't easy. <laughs> That's going up against your employer at the end of the day. And uh, no, no one wants to do that, but ultimately, you know, it's what was necessary. Um, ben, ben, I want to ask you, how much has music helped you since you retired and since you experienced this brain trauma? I mean, cause I mean, you've been singing since you were a kid, right? Yeah. And, I grew up- and how much has this really helped you heal? Uh, it was definitely, um, uh, it was definitely an incredible, um, healing and restorative quality, um, in my life. Uh, it, it, it's obviously, we all know that it's a, music is a universal language. Uh, it's, it is, um, it is a true form of expression. And, and so you're able to, I think really work. It's a very therapeutic, um, uh, part of my life. And so it just, it, it gave me the ability to write and to, uh, it also, it also gave me purpose, you guys. I mean, I think that that's, um, that, that's a huge, that's a huge, um, uh, important, uh, piece of the puzzle. As you know, <clears throat> you know, the statistics of transitioning out of the NFL are very challenging. I mean, you've got high divorce, high bankruptcy. Um, and a lot of that is because, guys have their entire identity wrapped up in a sport. And so music gave me 
um, purpose. It gave me another uh, part of, uh, of my identity. And so when, um, when my career unfortunately came to an end in Cincinnati, which is one of the, you know, my great disappointments, um, I at least had the ability to fall back on, on music. I knew that that's what I wanted to, to try um, along with speaking. And, and so I, I, it gave me purpose. I, I knew that I was going to uh, move to Nashville and, and really, you know, give, give it a, um, give it a chance. And so that helped me through the transition of having to overcome that, that last concussion and having to retire and, and, and moving on to the next chapter. So what is it like for you when you write music? Does it just come to you? I mean, is this a process of it? It's, it's an hour. Sometimes is it a couple of months or is it just a matter of feeling and connecting with the story you're trying to tell, which kind of dictates how quickly you can get the words down? Yeah. You know, I kind of, I like to just, um, I, when I, when I go in for writing sessions, I like to, I like to, I like to just, um, kind of dive in deep, you know, and kind of lock myself in a room. My favorite form of writing is co-writing, um, because I think being able to, um, being able to brainstorm with a, with a group of, of musicians um, in my, in my experience has really been what's pulled out the, the you know, the, um, you know, kind of the beauty of, of the song because you get multiple perspectives and you are able to craft the right language and rhetoric uh, to really have the impact that you are hoping for out of that song. And so um, yeah, for me, it typically, you know, you, you go into a room and you just lock yourself in there. Um, and, and, um, more often than not, when you surround yourself with, with great, with great artists, um, you, you come out of there with a pretty cool, uh, a pretty cool song. It's pretty amazing. The gifts that people have musically and what you can come up with, no matter what your specialty is, drums, vocals, writing background, whatever the case may be. Yeah, that's a skill set I do not possess. <laughs> oh, come on, Matt. Give us something right now. And you've got the, Matt's got the carpool karaoke track to prove it. Too. That's right. That's right. No, it, it, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, it, music has been, you know, music has really given – I've had a chance to do some incredible things in, in music and to sing for presidents, and I had to get to serenade Muhammad Ali on his 60th birthday party. and, and um, within the last year and a half, I, I, um, uh, somewhat of a providential, um, experience, but I've, I've, I've gotten in, into an international singing group with two other, uh, two other award nominated, um, men from, from different countries, Mark Masri from Canada, Toronto and Andre Venter from Cape Town, South Africa. And, um, and uh, we, we formed this group reborn. It kind of came out of nowhere and, it, and it's um, unfortunately because of COVID we've had to, we've kind of had to put a pause on that, but we're ready to hit the ground running in 2021 here. And it's going to be really exciting to see what happens. These, these are two incredible singers and, and we're trying to put out some, um, some, some new music uh, together um, that I'm, I think is going to be a, um, a showstopper. Ben, do you remember at training camp, I don't know what the year was, when Muhammad Ali came to Georgetown College at Bengals training camp and he, and he came out onto the field and the, the players kind of surrounded him? Oh, gosh, I don't remember when that was. It, it was 
it was unbelievable. Yeah. So, I mean, because you could just tell that Muhammad Ali, he loves being the champ, right? Oh, he's, yeah. He's the champ, and he loves being the champ. And it was just incredible to kind of be around him. Yeah. And see everyone's reaction to be able to be kind of around the champ. What did you sing for him? I sang a song called What You'd Call a Dream, uh, which is an off-Broadway re- review. Um, and, and the whole song is about baseball. It's about this perfect dream situation where this 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 boy hits the game winning um, uh, grand slam. Uh, the sun is shining, uh, and his dad's in the stands. And um, it's just this incredible song about the um, the perfect championship sports dream. Uh, and then I changed the last verse. Um, I rewrote it for him. And it had something to do, this was a while ago, but I think it was, it's the final round just before the bell when Frazier says no more. Um, and the, the, the towel's thrown and the crowd erupts with Ali as the roar. And he's what you'd call a dream. That's it awesome. was just this epic moment and like, uh, Andre, uh, Andre Agassi and, and uh, Steffi Graf and uh, Annika Soren. I mean, this, this was at this event where you've got all of these world-class athletes. Uh, Johnny Bench actually was the MC, um, um, And so it, it was uh, – and everybody just stood up, and it was just – man, I've got a picture of it down in my basement. It's just an epic, epic story. How hard is it to sing the national anthem? I've heard it's a tough song to sing. Not, not for me. I've, no, I've, do, no, where's I've, your favorite place you've ever sung it? Oh, golly. Well, like I said, I, I actually have sung, I sang, I sang that for both President Bush's senior and junior, uh, standing right next to him in Minneapolis uh, at, at two different Republican um, conventions. And um, that was pretty, I mean, that's pretty amazing. If you, if you think about it, you stand next to the commander in chief and sing the national anthem. Um, That's incredible. Did, were you nervous? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, you were, <laughs> you, you had to, I mean, there was just so much uh, secret service and the, the, everything you had to go through in order to, you know, to even get up on that stage um, was, uh, was pretty intimidating. Uh, but I remember uh, George W after we were done singing, he, he turned and looked right at me and he said, man, football players aren't supposed to sound like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, another, another great uh, memory was um, um, I was asked by the university of Minnesota to sing the national anthem against Purdue um, after nine 11. And so um, that was the first time I'd ever sang before playing and uh, they had brought out a, an American flag that draped across the entire field. And, you know, Purdue players and Gopher players came together. And, and, uh, so you're in full dress uniform. Full dress uniform. Yeah, I've got a shoulder pad. pads, the whole works. Shoulder pads and everything. Yep. And, um, and that was a, that was a sobering uh, experience, um, but a huge honor. So, Ben, I'm curious. So we, we like to talk about what athletes do off the field. And I'm curious, during your time as an athlete, or maybe, maybe after, but particularly your time while you were on the field, 
what were some of the great things you got to do off the field? You know, we hear a lot about athletes going to the children's hospital, doing things like that, but what are some memories that stand out of, you know, just opportunities that get presented to you because you're a professional athlete and seeing kids smiles light up or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, faith is a big part of my, uh, big part of my life. And, and, um, I, I've spent a lot of time speaking and, and, and sharing test my testimony and, in churches and, and doing my best to encourage the, um, you know, the spiritual caliber of, of, of people, because, you know, faith is such a, a powerful tool. In fact, it's, it's, uh, in, engraved in the side of our Super Bowl rings. I don't know if you guys knew that we have the only Super Bowl ring in the history of football to have a spiritual belief system engraved in the side of the ring. It's the word faith. Um, you know, the acronym for it is freedom for all individuals to trust and hope in each other. Right. And, and, um, you know, um, outside of religion, that's something I think we can all get behind is, you know, how do we all uh, trust and hope in each other, uh, which leads to, um, you know, just creating the strongest team. But, but that, that, that's definitely something that I was very committed to. Um, uh, another really unique opportunity that happened to me in, in Indianapolis was I got asked by the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra to perform during their Yuletide, um, during their Yuletide concert series. So every other year they do a big series in Indianapolis called Yuletide. It goes for a month. And that year the, the headliner was a Grammy, a multi-Grammy winning uh, female vocalist by the name of Sandy Patty. She's one of the most decorated female vocalists in the world, uh, um, inspirational singer. And Sandy and I had become very close. Um, and so we did this incredible um, uh, number called, What Are You Doing New Year's Eve? And with, with the full symphony orchestra behind us and costumes and dancers and all this stuff during the season. So the entire month of December, I did 16 shows with Sandy Patty and the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra where I, where I would literally go from RCA Dome and I would finish the game and I would literally run through skywalks over to uh, the, uh, the concert hall and I would go put on a blue and white tux with long tails and I would go out on stage and perform with Sandy Patty and the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> I don't think they would have objected, Ben, if you would have, because your schedule is so busy, if you would have just pulled a Golden Gophers uh, kind of reminiscent memory after 9-11 and just go in your full-dressed uniform, man, with how busy you were. Just be out there in your shoulder pads. Oh, and, gosh. That would have been actually funny now that you think about that. I should have brought that Ben, your music oh, is... Napoleon agreed to it. They said as long as it doesn't, they just said as long as it doesn't affect your play, you know, and it didn't, so... That's awesome. Ben, how proud are you of the song, uh, You Will Always Be My Girls? Um, from what I understand, the inspiration came to you on a flight. You're on an airplane, and it talks about your love and your passion and your dedication to not only your wife, Karen, but your four daughters as you kind of deal with the toll and, and memory loss and, and brain trauma. How, what was the inspiration? Why did you start writing on the flight, and, and what does the song mean to you personally? Well, that song is a great example, too, of... Um of what comes out of a, a co-writing situation. And I, I was on a call with my producer at the time, Rick Barron and uh, Rick just as I 
I was on that plane. He said, you know, have you ever written that love letter to your wife and girls? Now, this is before learning Rx. So this is when, this is when I'm, I'm having some of these memory issues. Um, all of the news that's coming out of the concussion crisis is really bad. You remember this early on, you know, how, how daunting and scary CTE was and that, that if you play football, you're going to have it, no question. Um, and so all of these emotions were just feeling me at that time. And, um, and I sat down on that plane and I wrote that letter. Like, you know, if, if I'm somebody in the future, if I'm a former player in the future that, that has, you know, severe effects from um, CTE, I want to make sure I write the letter to my wife and my daughters. And out of that letter, you know, we co-wrote that song, You Will Always Be My Girls. And um, I, I remember being in a movie theater with my wife, um, and we had just released, uh, this is after I spoke to Congress, and I had talked about the song, and, they, and everybody wanted to hear it. So I finally released it, um, you know, not thinking much of it. And then all of a sudden, uh, I, get, I get a little notification that NFL on Fox, you know, reposted it and, and the list just goes on and on. And all of a sudden, you know, what was a, a couple hundred views turned into, you know, a million, million and a half, you know, so it, it's a, and here's the thing. Um, again, the whole goal of that video uh, and its emotional nature is to do what I've set out to do, which is, you know, how do you, how do you get people to really care about this? You know, and um, how do you tug on that heart and make them go, wow, okay, I didn't really look at it from that perspective. And, um, and so when you, when you go through and read and read through the vast majority of the responses, it's caregivers. It's caregivers of people with brain disease saying, thank you for telling our story. You know, and then you get, and then you got your, your small handful of, of, uh, you know, just NFL haters and people that are, are just nasty. But, but for the most part, I mean, it's all, it's all caregivers. It's all people saying, gosh, we don't have a voice and, and it's so hard. And, and thank you so much for, for, and that's the whole point of the, of that song. And Ben, you bring up a little bit in passing right there, but what's it like to be a public figure in a social media world, somebody who is trying to express vulnerability as mm -hmm. you are somebody who's trying to be authentic and themselves. Get real. Yeah. yeah. How, how, how do you, how do you balance that with the people who are just, I mean, let's be honest, negative Nellies, right? There's nothing you're ever going to be able to do to make them happy. Yeah. You know, you've got to, you've got to have thick skin. Um, you know, I, I knew writing that book was, was going to be, um, that there was going to be some backlash and I, I definitely did get, did get some backlash. Um, and I think most of the people that, that gave the harshest criticism never even read the book. I yep. mean, if you just read, if you just read the book, I mean, it's, it's, it's so clear on my love and passion for football and, um, and you know, um, and it's interesting you bring that up. I would get that complaint all the time as a journalist. I, I, I can't believe you said that in your story. Did you watch the story? No, I just heard about it. <laughs> exactly. I guarantee you if you Come watch on. it, you, if, you wa if you take the time to watch it and absorb it and, and yeah. process it, I, I think you might have a different uh, take. So right. just, just 
watch it. Well, and any, listen, anytime, anytime you choose to be a crusader on any, on anything, you, you draw a, lot, a, a line in the sand, you know, and um, I think for the most part, because my messaging um, in, in everything that I do, whether it's leadership, music, or, um, or, you know, philanthropy, it, it's, it's all been, you know, intentionally constructed. I mean, I, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not an, I'm, I'm definitely, well, I don't know if activist is the right word, but I'm not, I'm, I'm trying to always focus on the positive. You know, I, I, it's, being a peacemaker has always been a part of my personality since I was a little kid. It's just, I, I'm, I'm the kind of person that always wants to figure out how to solve the problem, um, you know, before it gets out of control. And so, um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, people, social media gives us this, this uh, veil um, of protection that we believe because we can just write something and click a button. But as we, as you know, it, it has a, it has a huge effect, you know, so you got to be really careful and you got to think through what you're going to write because once you write it, it's out there and, and you better be prepared to, to stand by, you, you know, your position. Cause it's, it's, it's going to, um, it's going to uh, offend as much as it, um, you know, praises. Ben, I wanted to ask you how many, how many, I guess, experiences have you had in retirement where you've really gathered an appreciation based on being a trailblazer, maybe wanting to be a reformer. You've really gotten a good, a good understanding of who your friends are. I mean, outside of Karn and the girls, who, who your friends really are and who stood by you versus, oh, Ben's the football player. Ben's retired. We don't need Ben anymore to catch passes for our team. Sure, sure. Um, well, gosh, that's a really good question. I, I think that, um, I think that um, you know, in my life, the relationships that I've um, – I've tried my best to surround myself with people of integrity. And, and so as I look back, Zach, if I'm just being completely honest, I don't really have a lot of stories of, of, of being stabbed in the back or, or people in my life retreating from, um, you know, from, from the relationship. Um, and, you know, I mean, whether it's, whether it's, you know, my teammates or whether it's a guy like Tony Dungy, I mean, coach Dungy, um, you know, I can text him right now and he'll, and he'll, fire back a text and, and, uh, and, and, and stay in, in communication. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it, you know, what I've experienced really has just come from, from naysayers, you know, and people that are, that are all they're looking for is an opportunity to, to find something wrong, um, you know, so that they can magnify it and, and move an agenda forward. Um, but in my, in my personal relationships, I've been very fortunate to, uh, to really surround myself with people that I care a lot about and care a lot about me. Does this really come down to grassroots football coaching and care for young kids in terms of coaching football the right way? We tackle with our head up. We don't lead with our head. We lead with our shoulder and, and just monitoring every element of brain health starting when kids are, are tackling for the first time, maybe when they're in fourth grade. Yeah, I, I say this in my leadership company, um, that culture is the leader's choice. Um, and if, you know, there, there are posts, you know, still coming out all the time. I just saw one by the concussion, um, 
uh, Sports Concussion Institute, the Chris Nowinski and uh, Institute um, uh, of a of a uh, college basketball female college basketball player uh, taking a secret video of her coach reprimanding her um, after a concussion, and it's it's just horrible. It's just nasty. I mean, this is this is recent, and she's just degrading this girl. You know. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about it. How dare you, you know, abandon your team just because of, you know, these headaches. I mean, this is, this is a college coach and it's kind of like, um, this is someone's brain. This well, is someone's brain. And so to your point, to your point, yes, it, it starts, it starts at the top. And when your leadership cares and when your leadership creates a culture of caring, um, the waterfall effect that that will have on your players is, is um, lifelong. And so we do need coaches to emotionally care about the issue so that their behavior follows. Do you feel that we had a Greg Smith on a Missouri high school coaches uh, hall of famer. And he said that he feels like the game of football is safer today than it's ever been. Um, do you feel that way? I think that um, the game of football is more oh, educated and aware of the consequences of injuries than it's ever been. Um, it's the most violent sport in the world, and that's why we love it. That's why I love it. I'm, I'm not, you know, on a on a pedestal here. Like I, I, I love football because it's. Man, it what a you know what an exciting sport, and a lot of that is because of the 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 hardcore full contact nature of 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 the game. Um, and so, uh, you're never going to be able to take that away. You're never going to be able to stop uh, ACL tears and Achilles tears and rotator cuff, you know, tears and and concussions. Those are the consequences of playing football so that's it you know so we we have to if, if that's true we just have to have the right system set up in order to in hand and i think i i do think that because the focus on on the injury i do think that you know the educate there's there's legislation in all 50 states for concussion um programming so it's 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 not for lack of education it's lack of emotional connection and truly yeah. understanding the toll it takes by, yeah, you, by connecting with someone's personal story like yours you won't find, like anyone else's you won't find one coach not a single coach in this entire country that has that doesn't understand what a concussion is now okay you will find a divide between who cares about it. And that, that, that's what we need to figure out how to change. I learned growing up in journalism school, there's a fine line between a report and a story. Mm -hmm. Reports are A, B, C, I went here, did this, did this. Stories are a lot more personal. Mm. And I've always wanted to ask you, playing with Peyton Manning, when he comes to the line of scrimmage and he starts audibling and running the show and doing all the arm motions and everything like that, how much of that is actually changing the play and how much of that is just a lot of show for the defense and there's no change whatsoever to what's being called? Everything is legit. 
He's he's even, so he's checking off the play. Even yeah, everything is everything is everything is intentional. Um, so you know he's not. There's never a time when he's up there just saying stuff that we've never heard to can just you know just to confuse. There 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 are um, very specific things that he's saying in order to confuse. You know, I mean, confusing the defense. Yes. Yeah, correct. But 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 I think sometimes people think like how much of it is how much of it is fake. None of it's fake. Every every word is intentional. It's just it's just um, um, you know when is he using it and how is he using it in order to you know confuse. Who were since we're talking about on the field? And you got it. Since we're talking about on the field, um, Ben, maybe who were some of the greatest players you played with that we don't talk about on a normal basis? Obviously the Peytons of the world, but Marvin Harrison's of the world, but who were some of the best players that maybe never got the notoriety? Um, gosh, I think, um, you know, I think one great thing about playing for Peyton is, is he could make, he could really make any receiver great. And so you look at guys, um, you know, if I'm just if I'm just thinking about Indianapolis, you know, um, you know whether it was Anthony Gonzalez or or um, or Austin Colley or any of the tight ends. Um, you know, I played with um, uh, another tight end that was in our group with a guy named Brian Fletcher, and um, Brian came out of UCLA um, and you know made great plays, made clutch plays he you know he, he some huge catches in in um in some uh of our playoff games um that were game changers you know Peyton just had the ability to to use everybody but guys guys like that you're right I mean they they kind of they go they go forgotten um on the defensive side you know I think of guys like Gary Brackett who was our middle linebacker and maybe that's a recognizable name, but compared to others, I think, you know, guys like, like Gary can get forgotten. Um, but he, he has such an incredible story um, of having to overcome so much tribulation in order to get to where he was. And now he has such a great success story. Um, yeah. Guys like, uh, um, I was going to I'm trying to remember his last name as one of our safeties. Um, oh shoot! It's it's, it's but you, the point is is that they're there, you know. And uh, and you're absolutely right. You know, there's just so many so many great players that we that we forget about that that are integral part performers in the games. And what about you had a front row seat for one of the great comebacks and and one of the great you know quarterback rivalries, uh, Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. That AFC championship game where you guys fell behind, I was a 21 to three. Yep. And came back and won. What was, what was it like to be in that game with, with Brady and Manning that may be the best, you know, head to head quarterback rivalry of our lifetime, or maybe in the history of the NFL. Man, what an intense, what an intense game. Um, you know, the going into that locker room at halftime was just so depressing. Um, and, you know, to hear, coach Dungy's words of encouragement and um, it, it was just something changed something all of a sudden just clicked and the, and it's hard to explain, but from the minute we 
had the kickoff, uh, it was, it was game on. And, um, and um, Marlon Jackson intercepted that pass from, from, uh, from Tom Brady to seal the deal. And, and it was just, <laughs> it was just an explosion. It was almost like that was the Super Bowl. You know what I mean? That was the Super Bowl. It was this incredible game. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it, it, I think it just really set the tone for us to go down and beat the Bears because, you know, how do you lose after something like that? Are you in awe of what Tom Brady's doing at 43? You know, it, it's like it, it, health is health is everything, right? And, you know, if, if Peyton Manning doesn't have his neck issues, um, he might be right there with Tom Brady. You know, it's like if you can – longevity is, is everything. And so he's managed to uh, – to protect himself and from, you know, from some serious injuries that especially affect his ability to throw the ball. Um, and uh, I'm so curious what's going to happen this next, you know, this next season in Tampa, uh, especially with Gronk. It's going to be interesting. That team needs something though. That team needs a, a jump start. So let's hope that this is, that this is it. You'll, you'll go sing the anthem for him. Get him, get him. Anthem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What are your memories? And then it was it was it was short lived because of injury, and I know it was disappointing because um, you, you you voiced that. But when you went to Cincinnati, playing under Marvin Lewis, playing with Carson Palmer and alongside Chad Johnson and T.J. Hushmanzada, what, what was that like? And what memories do you do you take away from your time with the Bengals? Well, it was a dream come true. It was it was kind of um, it was a, a confirmation that you know. I, what I was hoping I was going to happen to me out of college in the draft had finally happened, you know, um, at the end of my first four years. And so I, I came to Cincinnati with incredibly high hopes to become a, a standout um, tight end in the NFL. Um, and as you guys know, it just um, – I faced a number of injuries in that first season and then, and then with the concussion in the second, it, you know, completely outside of my control. I just, you know, um, you know, had this in very difficult time staying healthy. Uh, but, um, well, I did learn like, man, you know, you talk about talent. Um, there was uh, such incredible talent on the Bengals, you know, um, you know, uh, which is kind of like a head scratcher, you know, and, and I think it goes back to just, the culture of an organization because you wonder how do you have so much talent and not get beyond uh, um, the first playoff game and I don't even know Zach it, is it how many years has it been since they've won a playoff January game? 6th 1991 yeah so you know um, so it, it never had anything to do with talent and you know it, it'll be interesting to see um, what happens um, as time goes on in, in the city, but, um, but as far as, as far as the relationships that I created there and, and um, guys like Marvin Lewis, I just reconnected with him recently, um, you know, was always a very kind and, you know, had definitely had some dungeon qualities to his coaching style, which was great. And, and uh, my, my tight ends coach, Jonathan Hayes, what an awesome, what an awesome man. And, and, uh, husband and, and father and, and a great tight end himself. And so it was, it was amazing to be coached by 
someone with, um, with true experience as a tight end. Um, yeah. And to go from Peyton Manning to Carson Palmer, you can't really complain. Jonathan Hayes' son, Jackson, is an NBA budding star with the New Orleans Pelicans. Yeah, that's He's amazing. an unbelievable player, and he played at the University of Texas, Matt, right down the road from you. Yeah. Yeah, that's – yeah, he's uh, – <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an athletic family. Um, and I uh, wish them incredible success. How was it to connect with Marvin again? Uh, it was good. It was, it, it was good. We, we, we had a uh, kind of a lovely text exchange and um, – um, really focused on family and, and, uh, and he's so, a grandpa now. Yeah. That's what he, that's what he said. So, you know, again, it, it was just, um, you know, that, that last concussion happened on hard knocks and it just was a, what a tough way to, to have to walk away from, from such an opportunity, you know, and that's one thing that I, that I said in the book too, in my, um, in my comments at the end was just really thanking the Brown family for the opportunity. You know, that's one, one thing that I, I do remember about Mike Brown is, is, um, you know, he had a, he has a, a really big heart to give, to give players a chance. And, um, you know, he gave me a great chance and, and, uh, unfortunately I couldn't stay healthy for the team, but, um, but, uh, you know, Cincinnati is, uh, will have a special place in my heart for sure. So Ben, we like to wrap up and you, you've probably said a lot of it, but we like to wrap up here as we sort of come to the end with a question. So what has Ben today tell maybe 22 year old Ben coming out of university of Minnesota? What do you know today that you wish you could tell that version of yourself? Um, it's just a game. It's just a game. You know, I, I, I remember just, you know, moments of, of just incredible, um, the, the stress and the, you know, and, and even the fear, the fear of failure, um, you know, is something that can really be, I think, debilitating for players. Um, and I just wish I could go back and tell myself, man, it's, it's just a game. This is not, this is not who you are. It's what you do right now. And so enjoy it you know, and, and work as hard as you can, but don't get too caught up into it. Don't let it run your life. You know, don't let it war. Um, because there's so much more that you have to give. And I think that probably would have helped me, um, as a player, um, you know, and even as, even, a, you know, with on the field performance, cause I think that, you know, I think the great players, you guys are, are guys that, uh, that have this mental fortitude, you know, to, to play that game at that level. And, um, and so I think that's one, there'd be a lot more too, but that's one that comes to mind right away. How do you really balance that Ben between giving your heart and soul to something, doing the very best you can at something, but not letting it consume you, not letting it define you, not being so obsessed with it, that it becomes kind of an identifier of you. Well, man, it's like, you're going to pull the preacher out of me, Zach. You know, it, 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 to me, guys, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's who and what do you serve in your life? Um, if you serve yourself, then everything you do is about yourself. And, um, and I've been that person in my life multiple times. And usually when things don't go well and I'm serving myself, I fall flat on my face and I don't, I don't know what to do. Um, but, 
when you've served something bigger than yourself, something outside of yourself that gives you purpose, um, um, that gives you identity, then you're able to kind of cast all of that onto, onto that belief system. And it, it uplifts you and, and, and makes you whole and gives you a reason uh, to put one foot in front of the other. And that, that's obviously, that's just my personal experience, but that's, that's true in my life. And it's been, it's been something that has helped me uh, manage all of the ups and downs and the, and the, the roller coaster ride that we're all on as human beings. And it's been, uh, it's been incredibly critical. Well, Ben, we just want to thank you so much for your time today on our podcast. We really appreciate it. No problem. Outside of your friends and family, you've got two guys here that are really, really pulling for you and wishing you just the best of health and, you know, whatever your hopes and dreams are for the future, we hope it all works out for you. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate you guys. Yeah. Thank you, Ben. Ben Utech, a Super Bowl winning tight end with the Indianapolis Colts, who endured five concussions in his career, joined us on the Victory Away from the Venue podcast. Matt, a great guest, great guy, great man and father. And I just hope that as medical science advances, we can get more of an understanding of this uncharted territory, relatively speaking, known as the brain, to be able to get an, a, a grasp and an understanding of just what exactly is involved in CTE, what is involved in brain trauma, and, and like Ben talked about, how you can use different strategies to recapture some of what was maybe lost. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we- A, a we lot all, to unpack here, there's a lot. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that we all have, I, I don't care who you are, whether you're interested in football or not, you know, you definitely as an American, you know, it's, it's kind of part of everybody's life on some level, I guess. And, you know, it's the, the most popular sport in, in this country. And, you know, we've all gotten to hear sort of the, the high level overview of like what concussions are and sort of the fight between the NFL and the players association, all of that. And, you know, for me, it's just so refreshing to hear it, you know, sort of directly from a source that has lived it, that has gone through it that has testified in front of Congress about it, um, you know, and somebody who can be, I guess, so measured and so, um, you know, one Rational. of the things I would, yeah. And, and just really trying to, you know, clearly educate himself on the topic so that he can be an advocate and an activist, a whatever it is just for, you know, brain health and brain safety. And, and, you know, really interesting using, as you, as you sort of alluded to learning RX and, you know, some tools like that to, to, to really understand with his neurologists, you know, what can be recaptured, what can't be recaptured, how do we slow this disease? And, and you're right. We know so little about the brain, you know, I don't care. And, and neurologists would tell you the same thing, you know, they, they know a lot, but there's still so much that they don't know. And, you know, being able to use somebody like Ben and, and who's willing to, to be used, you know, for, for the betterment of, you know, where this all leads, I think is a really inspiring and interesting place and the fact that he, he used that word vulnerable a lot, but the fact that he's willing to be public about it, that he's willing to be vulnerable on the subject and many, many other subjects, I think is just a really refreshing view of a, of a, of a Super Bowl winning professional athlete, right? I think it's going to be really interesting 
to look into a crystal ball, which we can't do, but maybe in a time capsule, look at football 20 years from now and, and see what that looks like, right? Because you see so many rules changes where literally making a tackle where you lead with your shoulder is getting flagged for passenger or not passenger interference, but a personal foul. Right. Yeah. And I'm just interested to see if football maintains that same ratings appeal. Yeah. That, that oh. has made, it is made for a rabid fan base. And I'm just wondering if football in 20 years is going to look like football today. Cause I think you know, the game is already rapidly changing. Yeah, for sure. And you know, it's funny. I, I hear, I guess as a football fan, um, I never played the game. Not, not even like Pop Warner as a kid. So I, I under, understand that that's the perspective I come from. But I've been going to football games and watching football games on TV in my granddad's lap, you know, since I was three years old. And I love the game. I love the sport. Um, it's actually my, my favorite sport to go to live in person. Um, and I guess I have seen over the last few years in particular with this sort of like is this a personal foul? Is this not a personal foul? Is this, and I understand the sort of consternation that comes from that of players not really knowing what the, what the rules are, that they're, that they're fluid, that they're, you know, maybe not overly clear and all of, and I get it. I do. But at the same time, as somebody who loves the game and doesn't want it to go away, I'm also as a fan, I'm okay with some of that stuff, because I know at the end of the day that what they're trying to do is make it better long-term. And if there are mistakes and bumps that happen in those rule changes and difficulty in understanding it for the fan and the player and the coaches and everything else, I'm kind of okay with that. You know, at some point they're going to figure it all out. Right. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm okay knowing that at the end of the day, the end goal is stewarding the sport into the next generation and if that means we've got those sort of bumps and bruises along the way it doesn't really bother me yeah it's a small price to pay for the greater good and the health of the players i agree with you yeah and it's frustrating watching and it's frustrating watching it on tv or something and going how the hell is that a personal you know like grumpy matt you know when it's going against me or whatever but 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 big picture grand scheme you know and even if it man and i've seen it right where where that caused a loss, you know, or whatever, or, or a win on the other side. And it doesn't seem fair in that moment, but, but big picture, even that I'm okay with as long as we're ultimately striving for the best possible stewardship going forward. I love hearing Tony Dungy stories. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't matter who I talk to, who played for them. They all say the same thing. Incredible man incredible leader and not a screamer not a screamer just the the kind of coach you didn't want to disappoint because you might have gotten a look you might have gotten a you know what was that about which was is so much worse right when you have when you think the world is someone and and they just look at you a certain way when you let them down yeah I, i i wish we had asked ben now that i think about it you know we've heard from you know, multiple people on our podcast around, um, you know, coaches who uh, the best coaches understand 
which players you need to kind of kick in the ass a little bit, which ones you need to coddle a little bit, which ones you need to lift up, you know, and, and the best coaches understand that. But my take, and I, and I wish I'd asked Ben that question of, you know, what, what, what was Tony Dungy's style? But what's funny about Tony Dungy is from an outsider's perspective, somebody who's never met the man, but read a lot of stories about him. He almost seems like the one who, who it went the other way around. Right. That, as you said, like that, that he didn't need to ever focus on each individual player in order to like motivate them. His motivation was just that you didn't want to disappoint him. And, you know, it's that very father figure sort of perspective. And I I think, I think he was so good at that because of some of the things that Ben touched on, right. That he cared about you as a human being first and foremost, and as a player, a very deep second. And, um, and I, I just wonder, I, I really wish we would have asked that if, if he also took on some of those other coaching kind of things that we've heard about a lot of, you know, did he treat each player a little bit differently or did he just, did he take that fatherly role? And, you know, it was up to you to, to, to kind of bend to his, his way of doing things. This has been another episode. We appreciate you checking it out. Give us a like, give us a subscribe and we hope to have you on board long into the future. Take care guys.